This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Father, take these words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A couple of years ago, in Cairo, a terrorist went into the compound of the Coptic Cathedral, into one of the churches on that compound, and put a bomb under one of the pews. Coptic Church Uh, has a tradition of the men worshiping on one side of the church and the women worshiping on the other side of the church. That day, 27 women and children were killed by that bomb. The next day, a group of young Arabic-speaking men gathered outside of the cathedral and chanted with very loud, very strong voices. You can actually find it on YouTube if you look. As a Westerner looking at this video, my first reaction was, frankly, fear. A group of young Arabic-speaking men chanting with, uh, with great vigor does that to somebody from my culture. Until I learned that what they were chanting was the Nicene Creed. They were Coptic Christians And they were saying, we are here. We are not going away. Our society may want us dead, but we are here. Uh, The passage that we're reading today from the book of Acts continues the story of what happened to Peter and John after they were involved in healing a lame man. And just before the passage that was read, we we hear that they are on trial for this good deed done to a cripple, as it says in the King James Version. And they are told by the authorities that they are no longer to speak in the name of Jesus. Uh, Peter and John do not agree with the authorities. Peter and John answered them and said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, Rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And so they are warned and they go away. And they continue to defy the authorities. They continue to speak in the name of Jesus. Now, talking about defying the authorities in our culture can lead us into a bit of trouble. There is, an, there is an elephant in the room uh, in North American Christianity. We have a problem in this country, and not only in this country, but actually throughout the Western world. We are so deeply divided in society and in the church that political discussion almost always leads to conflict. Let me just name some topics. Abortion, religious freedom, 
immigration, capital punishment, gun control, socialized medicine, climate change, gay rights, race relations. If I was to stand and preach about any of those today, I would suspect that a number of people would be trying to find out the rector's secret email address and letting him know that the bishop that you left in charge is causing trouble. Politics is hot right at the moment, and almost anything I might say about most of these topics might provoke someone to leave the church in a huff and not come back. If you want to know what I think about these subjects, I'm against four, four, against four, four, against, against, and four. You, you can figure it out if you're OCD. Now, on the one hand, talking about most of these things from the pulpit should get me in trouble, or at least talking about these things in certain ways. I am not an expert in politics or public policy or law or economics. Although I might want to add that those who are experts in politics or law or economics may have a few things to learn about ethics and morality. In some ways, though, this stuff is unavoidable. Politics is what our world is made up of. It's about how we organize society. The West African theologian named John Pobe, he's from Ghana. I heard him preach one time, and in the middle of his sermon, he said, where two or three are gathered together, there is politics. Now, there are some principles that I think most of us will want to agree on uh, if those principles are kind of rightly interpreted. Let me read a few passages, uh, a couple of passages from Scripture. From the first letter of Peter, the one who just said, we must obey God rather than men. In his first letter, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put silence to the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. Remember what, who's talking. This is in the middle of the Roman Empire in which Rome kept order by the sword and by the cross. The Pax Romana was not something that people kind of agreed on. It was something forced on them. Or 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all then, Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We should pray for authorities. We should honor authorities. We should seek to live a quiet and peaceful life. But there are times and places when the church cannot remain silent or should not remain silent. 
under Nazism in Germany, some of the church did not remain silent. Under apartheid in South Africa, some of the church rightly did not remain silent. The 13th chapter of the book of Revelation tells us that it is possible for the state, for a political system, to become allied with evil in such a way that that system becomes demonic. And so we have a balancing act we need to do to honor and pray for those in authority, but to be aware that there is a higher allegiance. In today's passage, the church does three things in relation to the society in which it was situated. Three things worthy of emulation, even if it means we will need to think of how to follow the example of the early church in our rather different context. The first is in that trial scene in verses 15 to 22, just prior to what we read. Uh, there it is made, clean that, uh, made clear that our primary allegiance lies first with God and not with any human institution. I, remember, uh, I wonder if you remember what is now an old movie. Uh, it's funny how movies become old to some of us. Uh, Chariots of Fire. In that movie, Eric Little, who later would become a missionary to China, was a runner in the Olympics, and he discovers at the Olympics in Paris that his heat is supposed to be run on a Sunday. And he is a strict Presbyterian who wants to obey the Sabbath, and so he refuses. Even though a member of the royal family attempts to talk him out of it, attempts to order him to run. But no, he must obey God rather than his king. Listen again to what it says in verses 19 and 20 of Acts chapter 4. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And so they continued to speak in the name of Jesus. And there are consequences. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, the disciples are arrested again. And again they say, we must obey God rather than men. This time they are not simply charged, uh, exhorted not to speak in the name of Jesus. They are also beaten in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is arrested because he never ceases to speak in the name of Jesus. And by the end of chapter 7, he is stoned to death. But the church continues to speak in the name of Jesus. There is a primary allegiance. The second thing that the church does in this passage is pray. In, in verses 23 to 30, we have a report of the prayer of the early church after this experience of both the wonderful joy of seeing a man healed, but also the, the, the worry and the tension of living in a situation where they can be arrested for doing these kinds of things. The prayer itself includes reflection on scripture. 
The scripture in question is Psalm 2. Let me read you what it says here in Acts chapter 4, where they quote this psalm. In verse 25, it says, Who by the mouth of our father David, your servant, did say by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples imagine vain things? The kings of the earth set themselves in array, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Psalm 2 speaks of the Gentiles raging against the Lord and his anointed. But now the people of Israel themselves have joined in that rage against God and his Messiah. In their prayer, it is both Jews and Gentiles who are God's enemies. But the church does not pray for vengeance. They don't even pray for the downfall of those powers, those authorities that are enemies of God. In fact, they thank God that God used their evil plots for good. In verse 28, it says, they were arrayed against your Messiah, Jesus, your child, Jesus, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The powers meant it for evil and God used it for good. The cross became the source of salvation for the world. And so what does the church pray for in this prayer? They pray for boldness. They pray for courage to continue to speak in the name of Jesus. And they pray that God will continue to heal and to do miracles. And the result is that the place is shaken. Uh, Biblical shorthand for the presence of God was in their midst. And they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they continue to speak boldly in the name of Jesus. And the book of Acts continues to report that bold speech and continues to report the healings and miracles that follow. The book of Acts will also report the suffering of the church that they have to go through because of this. The third thing that the church does comes in the end of the passage, and it looks almost like an appendix. Uh, Verse 32 says, Now the company of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of those things which he possessed was his own, but that they had everything in common. With great power the apostles gave testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds uh, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made to an as to any as any had need. And then it talks about Barnabas, who was one of those who had a piece of land and sold it and laid it at the apostles' feet to be used for those in need. They don't withdraw from their society, but within their society, they set up alternative structures. And those alternative structures are based on Old Testament law and on the teaching of Jesus. This is the beginning of the book of Acts. 
But at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, and remember, this is a, this is a two-volume work, in Jesus' first sermon at Nazareth, he gets up and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has sent me to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, the, the freedom for the captives, and the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus is looking back to the Old Testament and proclaiming, in effect, that in his ministry, the year of Jubilee has come. The acceptable year of the Lord. Now, the year of Jubilee was a, was a time, it was a, it was a command of God that every 50th year, uh, everything was to be shut down and returned back to the beginning. Everything was to be reset, rebooted, as it were. Debts were canceled. The prisons were opened. So, if there was going to be a year of Jubilee, it didn't do any good to accumulate more wealth than everybody else. Because everything was going to get reset. Now, the year of Jubilee was probably never practiced, as far as we can tell. But... The Sabbath year was. Every seventh year, the Sabbath year was, uh, was celebrated. And, and we do know that it was practiced frequently in Israel, certainly in the time of Jesus. And this is what it says about just about the Sabbath year. Jubilee is kind of a Sabbath of Sabbath years. In Deuteronomy 15, it says, At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release or a forgiveness, if you will, and this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he, has been, what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Uh, of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever is yours, uh, is with, uh, of yours is with your brother, you, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. There shall be no poor among you, God says, if you obey these commands. Later on in Deuteronomy 15, we have the quote that Jesus brings up at the end of his ministry, and that is that the poor will never cease from the land. The poor will never cease from the land because the people of Israel don't obey what God, does, what God says. To share, to release debts so that there will be no poor in the land. The early church evidently were reading Deuteronomy 15. Luke tells us, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, a direct allusion to Deuteronomy 15. Now, I'm not advocating that we become a cult and that we all empty our bank accounts and give them all to Jonathan so that he can uh, make all the decisions for us. Not at all. In fact, in chapter 5 of Acts, it makes it clear that the property that people own is under their own control. But when a need arises... People moved by the Holy Spirit are willing to be generous. Barnabas is an example of this. That's because people considered that what they owned was not theirs. 
that everything they had comes from God. Sometimes when we bring the offering up, we sing, don't we? All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. Everything that we have belongs to him. Money is not to become an idol. It is not to be our first priority. And if we make it that, it's because we are afraid. Fear produces idolatry. So what are we to remember from this passage? We are to remember that God comes before anything else. God is to be our first allegiance. We are to remember to pray for those in authority, but also to pray that God's word would be proclaimed and heard in our society so that not only individuals, but so that our whole society can be reshaped. And third, we are to set up what is in effect an alternative structure within our society. We are to share. We are not to make an idol of our property, but to be willing to give to those in need. And we do this because of Jesus. You know, Jesus always had a proper view of the authorities. He knew they had power, but he knew that all power came from God. He gave us the example of a life filled with prayer and especially the prayer that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. God wanted this society, our world, to be reshaped. Jesus shared his life with us. He came and dwelt with us. He intended among us, it says in the Gospel of John. And he still does. Because when two or three are gathered together, well, yes, there is politics, but he is there in the midst. His presence is there. When we go out and do mission, as it says at the end of Matthew chapter 28, Jesus has promised that he would be with us to the end of the ages. Jesus came and shared our life with us. In the words of Paul, he became poor so that through his poverty, we might become rich. That is the vocation of the church, to follow Jesus, to use whatever God gives us so that others can become rich. Let us pray. Father, reshape us into the image of your son, Jesus. Who, though he was rich, became poor, so that through his poverty, we might become rich. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.